the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Look, we missed this on Ag Day because we were out doing a broadcast last Friday on the Country Hour at the Cattle Australia Forum. But if you're out on farm and you're doing anything today... I'd love you to send us a text of what you're doing. Show me the agriculture that's taking place in Victoria at this lunchtime and show me if you're wearing a hat because one of the most famous brands in Australian hat wear, Akubra, has a new owner. So is the new owner of this uh, farm-friendly hat uh, got big plans? We will find out. More later on in the program. Also today, the EU grants an extension to the use of glyphosate for the next 10 years. We'll have a look into that in some depth shortly. You'll be able to hear from the NFF's CEO, Tony Ma, and we'll talk about the plans for a new mine near Swan Hill. That's worth a lot of money, but has some farmers concerned. All of that and more coming up today on The Country Hour. Right now, Rural News with Emma Field. Good afternoon, Emma. G'day, Warwick. Making rural news this Monday. The New South Wales government will establish a new fund offering low-interest loans to farmers to help deal with droughts. $250 million will be allocated to the Drought Ready and Resilience Fund, allowing farmers to apply for low-interest loans of up to $250,000. The government says it's estimated the loans will save farmers an average of $40,000 over a five-year loan term. A South Australian hay company with branches in Victoria and WA has struck a deal worth $100 million to continue to supply oat and hay to China following the resumption of trade. Balakava-based Balco Australia signed the deal with Chinese partner Bright Farming recently. It means over the next decade, Balco will export approximately 200,000 tonnes of Australian oat and hay to Bright Farming to primarily be used in the dairy industry. Balco Australia CEO Rob Lawson says a lot of work was put into keeping a good relationship with China whilst the market was closed. Went to their National Dairy Expo and like access wasn't fully returned at that point. But we were really encouraged in July when we had a number of our previous you know, large customers come and visit us, telling us they were looking forward to having Australian oat hay back into the market and would we be able to supply you know, when, when the market was restored. And then for me, I was you know, fortunate to go on the uh, Premier's trip through China with, with uh, Premier Malinowskis. Look, it was only within a week of being home from the Premier's trip that the market opened up. The chair of Peak Research and Innovation Body for Wool Growers has taken aim at the federal government's decision to phase out live sheep exports. At the Australian Wool Innovation AGM in Sydney last week, wool growers voted in three new board directors, which receives both levy payer and government funding. Emma Weston, CEO of Agri Digital, which is based on her family farm in Warren, New South Wales, joins the board alongside George Millington, director and owner of the Collinsville Stud Merinos in South Australia. Australia, and WA Merino producer Neil Jackson. AWI Chair Jock Laurie says the live export phase-out is stripping confidence from the wool sector. It all depends where you are in Australia. Uh, taking a lot of confidence out of the market in Western Australia, there's absolutely no doubt about that and I think that's had a and has been uh, reflected right across Australia in many ways. The dismantling I suppose of confidence in the industry over there I think is the disappointing part. So a lot of people I've discussed are seriously thinking about the future and where they want to do and how much, for instance, how much will they want to go. So it's been a challenging time over there. Uh, on the eastern seaboard, there's many areas that have slipped into a, uh, a pretty strong uh, drought in many cases, and that's also challenging people in the industry. 
Scientists, Indigenous rangers and mustering crews have been catching and tagging a thousand wild buffalo and cattle across northern Australia to track the animals from space. It's the largest remote herd management project of its kind, spread across 22,000 square kilometres. The CSIRO-run project had assistance from the Minimal Rangers near Bullman and contract musterers. CSIRO researcher Dr Andrew Hoskins says the data will be valuable in an area which has very little feral animal surveillance. You know, this is live data that's come through. It's gone from a buffalo up into space by one satellite, back down to the ground, and now we're reaching it via another satellite system. So what we're trying to do with this project is, well, understand the distribution of animals across um, the areas that we're working, understand how many animals there are across that area, and then understand how they're moving and operating across the landscape. So what we really want to be able to do is take that understanding and then bring that into systems that the um, Indigenous land managers can then work with to use that understanding to improve um, their land management outcomes. And South Australian researchers are trying to find ways to incorporate solar panels into vineyards, not just to cut costs, but also to protect vines in increasingly harsh climates. Vitivoltanics could protect vines and cut water use while also generating cheap power without the need for extra land. Adelaide University Associate Professor Cassandra Collins says the study will test the technology's potential impact on grape and wine quality. We've got a pilot study set up at the um, Wake campus of the University of Adelaide is to look at whether those solar panels can actually protect the vines during periods of high heat load, potentially even things like wind and frost and and other elements that the vines are exposed to. So solar panels may be a way to actually offer them a little bit of protection from those adverse weather conditions that may lead to a better quality outcome from the fruit that we're harvesting from those vines. And that wraps up Rural News. Thanks very much for that, Emma. Emma Field there with Rural News. But Shout out to you out there in country, our listener land today. You, you are fantastic. The photos coming in already of what you're doing in terms of agriculture-wise today are absolutely brilliant. Just about ready for a cuppa, says uh, one farmer in the gum boots with, a, a well, the Cooper-style hat on, looking at the goats, eat something that looks like a blackberry bush. <laughs> Some good work going on there, full stop. Uh, carting hay today was got the trusty Terry toweling on uh, Sir Jonathan at Terrap Terrap. Beautiful place in the world, Terrap Terrap. Hopefully the rain happens, says Jonathan. We'll get to that, Jonathan. Licking up canola in Logan. You just see the rows of wind road canola in front of the tractor head there. Looks brilliant. Bailing silage in southwest Victoria, says Pete, with a pick as well. Looking at greener pastures in the canola. Uh, still rows of silage there going underneath the tractor. It looks Absolutely magnificent there too, Pete. Thank you very much for that. And this one simply says, we're harvesting the veggie garden, bursting with all varieties of broccoli in Lucyvale, dropping some into town to the sister later on. Thank you for all of your texts. Remember to put your name on the text. Lucyvale, I love that part of the world, up near Coryong. Isn't that up uh, in the valley there? Absolutely beautiful part of the world. Let's talk mining now and 
how it interacts with agriculture on the country. Our farmers say there isn't enough time to review documents for a proposed mineral sands mine near Swan Hill in northern Victoria that's estimated to be worth more than half a billion dollars in annual revenue over 10 years. The environmental effects statement for the Goshen mineral sands mine proposed by mining company VHM was made public for the first time today ahead of planned construction in 2024. As Elsie Kennedy reports, farmers in the middle of harvest say they don't have time to respond to hundreds of pages of complex complex documents in just 40 business days. Beneath the fertile cropping country of northern Victoria is what was once the bed of an ancient inland sea. South of Swan Hill on the Murray River, the land is rich with what has been dubbed critical minerals. These are valuable deposits containing elements like titanium, zirconium and rare earths that are increasingly in demand as the world transitions to renewable energy. Farmer Craig Kennedy grows cereal crops between Swan Hill and Quambatook. His property is marked for development as part of Stage 3 of the Goshen Mine. He says he's going to need time to respond to the environmental effects statement put out by mining company VHM. The statement will be publicly exhibited for 40 business days from November 20 to January 17. Craig says that's not long enough. We're all cereal growers in this district and we're, we're really just getting into our harvest. We were, we were sent an email that the AES was imminent on the 31st of October and that's that's really just when we're all getting ready for harvest and um, hasn't really given us enough time to lodge extension period uh, requests and, and also um, sort of get our heads around what the AES is going to be about. Right now, I think you're we're speaking to you on the header at the moment, is that right? Yeah, we're currently harvesting lentils. It's early stages at harvest and there's a lot of things to get organised and uh, we're all trying to get our crops off at the optimal time. Yeah, a number of neighbours had had lodged um, extension requests, um, but but soon after we'd, we'd done that and, and we, we sort of felt like we had a bit of a run around sending them to different departments and then it was, um, oh, no, that's not the department. You send it to this department. So finally, by the time we felt we had the right department, then we were let know that the AES is going to be released uh, next week anyway. So... Yeah, even those sorts of things, it, it just takes a lot of time trying to coordinate, Yeah, just trying to make sure that neighbours have, have the right information as well and get these things done at, at the start of harvest is, is not ideal. How many properties are affected that you're aware of? Well, where the, where the plant would be and, and the initial stages of the mine, is, it's quite, like for a broadacre farming district, it's fairly well populated and, and, and that's the concern. It's also you know, the environmental impacts and the recovery of the land to a sustainable and, and productive farming enterprise. There are a number of our concerns and also, yeah, the extra traffic, dust, the noise, these um, amenity things that go along with, with having a, a mineral sands mine in your back door. And, and they're probably the, the, the leading concerns. Brad Bennett is another landholder who's concerned about the potential effects of the mine. His family farm borders the proposed mine site. He's planning to lodge a submission about his concerns, but he says he just doesn't have time at the moment and he's worried that over Christmas he's going to have trouble getting hold of lawyers and the advice that he might need to make his submission. Given that we're adjoining the mine site, there's going to be quite a lot of traffic involved with these these sort of operations. I think you're talking a couple hundred workers being bust in and out and the like. Yeah, being that close, noise, dust, those sorts of things are, are all a factor. My parents live on the farm. And yeah, it's, there's actually quite a few properties or quite a few houses in close proximity to the proposed mining area. This area is a, a very highly regarded 
cropping area of northwestern Victoria, and um, our soils are, are very, very fragile here. There, uh, we have very shallow topsoil, so it'll be. I'll be taking a keen interest in how they propose their rehabilitation is going to be undertaken. And so you're a, a farmer and an agronomist. I imagine reading legal documents probably isn't something that you've you've trained in. How are you feeling about that part of the process? No, well, that's where uh, taking on the advice of others is going to be quite important. At the moment, we're in the middle of our busiest time of the year with our grain harvest and uh, the way things are tracking at the moment, we'll probably be harvesting for another 30 days or so, which will take us up close to, to Christmas. And following that, we'll be in that Christmas New Year period. And as, yeah, I dare say some of those people we'd want to be touching base with to clarify points on probably be on leave and, and things like that. But yeah, it's uh, it's not something we do in our day-to-day jobs is lead, reading uh, thousands of pages of legal documents. A spokesperson for mining company VHM said the environmental effects statement was the culmination of five years of work to assess and mitigate the environmental aspects of the project. We look forward to continued engagement with and contribution to the community as we deliver the Goshen project, the spokesperson said. A spokesperson for the Victorian Environment Department said the 40 business day exhibition period was longer than the typical 30 business day timeframe and it came on the top of community and stakeholder consultation, which occurred while the EES was being developed. Landholders have until January 17 to make submissions about the proposal and after that an independent inquiry and advisory committee will consider public submissions via a public hearing. So there's a long way to go yet. That's Elsie Kennedy with that report for you. 0467 842 722 if you want to send us a text on the Country Hour. Ree <laughs> Hatware. Neil sent one from Briagalong saying, enjoying the program. I was just putting up something on Facebook about this very topic. Ree Mayakubra sends a lovely, lovely selfie from the farm with a very shiny new looking Akubra there, Neil. Your hat's in good shape. Thank you for that. Greg's got lunch on the go in the harvester saying, gotta love harvest. Greg, your lunch looks amazing. Is that a chicken salad? Are there a couple of eggs in there? That is brilliant. Thank you for sending that photo in. Yana says, I'm plowing, plowing and plowing near Swan Hill. <laughs> Lovely view out the front of the tractor there. Yana, I can see you in the baseball cap, in the tractor cap, still sun smart, I suppose, with the roof over your head uh, as you're taking, you know, getting about the job of uh, ploughing there as well. So thanks for sending that in. And Malcolm in Merbeen says, Hi Warwick, spraying herbicide on sun musket vines destined for dried fruit and listening to the country hour. Malcolm, that sounds pretty good to me. And the view outside your tractor cab of those vines as you go in between the rows looks pretty fantastic too. Thanks for sending that through. Interesting that you mentioned you're spraying herbicide because our next story on the Country Hour is about just that. The European Commission has extended its authorisation of the controversial weed killer glyphosate by 10 years. Authorisation in European Union countries was set to expire on December the 15th after a one-year extension was given last year. Farmers globally were worried the Commission wouldn't renew this approval given strong pressure from anti-glyphosate campaigners and claims glyphosate is a health hazard. CropLife Australia is an organisation that has funding from and represents many of the companies that produce and sell glyphosate in Australia. Chief Executive Matt Cossey was very happy when he heard the news of the approval in the EU but says the politics of glyphosate in Australia are very different. 
glyphosate's a crucial tool for farmers here in Australia, but uh, equally in Europe and around the world. So it's good to see that uh, the European Commission's uh, made the decision, which is based on all the independent expert scientific advice. The one great advantage we have in Australia is we have an independent science-based regulatory system. It doesn't involve politics, just made on data and uh, expert assessment. The European system gets a little more convoluted than that, and while all their independent agencies endorse the uh, uh, approval of glyphosate uh, and the European Commission's own expert committees have, it then also nominally needs to be approved at a political level, and they've struggled even to get that meeting to have quorum. So the European Commission's decision is a good common sense one and one that uh, confirms uh, the uh, importance of glyphosate. And this, I believe, follows the assessment by the European Food and Safety Authority as well. That's right, their Food and Safety Authority, their uh, chemical expert committees, um, along with all the independent scientific regulators within each of the EU countries have all uh, done the assessments. Really, it's uh, just a a matter of uh, good common sense uh, decisions. One, obviously, very important for European farmers, but also uh, important for Australian farmers so that we don't see European sort of uh, agricultural politics get in the way of any of our export markets. On that note, what implications would an EU ban on glyphosate, for example, have on the Australian grain growers? Well, I don't think we've seen European politics has got so ridiculous that they ban it, but it would uh, cause some uh, difficulties. That would be going to uh, products that are banned in Europe um, means that there's challenges with exporting to that market for Australian farmers who do use it. This is one of the really important issues, particularly around trade and particularly while the EU over recent times and and recently in an attempt to get a free trade agreement have sought to enforce farming practices on farmers in Australia and around the world that they wish to impose there. And that's something that we need to be very cautious of because as I said in Australia, the decisions made here are made by independent expert regulators based on evidence. And as we've just seen earlier this year with the uh, ABARES report, Australian farmers are some of the best practice and uh, most uh, environmentally sustainable farmers in the world. So we need to protect good agronomic policy here and we can't let trade issues warp that. So I think that's why uh, overall, uh, both for Australia and for Europe and globally, it's good to see some common sense finally come through in the European Commission. Last December, it was extended by 12 months. This time it's a 10-year agreement. What, why do you think there's been such a large jump in how long this is going to last? I think the European Commission and all their expert bodies recognise there's uh, no reason for it not to be extended at least 10 years, and really it should just be indefinitely. All the evidence is there about its importance, its safety, and why it's a critical tool for farming. And I think uh, really we're just seeing them move through their political process. To your knowledge, has any country banned glyphosate at this stage? I believe they uh, banned uh, glyphosate, in fact, nearly all chemistry in Sri Lanka a couple of years ago. We saw a bizarre decision which is why it's so important to be vigilant about a good public policy around agriculture and that we make those decisions on science because they caused a massive disaster to their farming sector. They essentially caused a famine in their own country and about 12 months after making that decision, which went against all the expert, independent expert advice they got, they changed that decision. That's CropLife Chief Executive Matt Cossey speaking to Jane McNaughton there. Not all producers are celebrating the EU's extension for the farm chemical. Tammy Jonas is a livestock producer that has a farming system that doesn't require 
as well, glyphosate. She is president of the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance and says the EU's decision is a step backwards, but it does include a restriction on farmers using glyphosate as a pre-harvest desiccant, which could reduce usage in Australia. We were at the Biodiversity COP in Montreal in December where the global biodiversity framework was agreed upon by all of the nations of the world. And Target 7 actually calls for a reduction by half of the risk from pesticides to um, environment and human health. And so this, to me, seems to be counter to that, given that those countries were in those meetings and agreed to that target. So it seems pretty retrograde to be extending one of the most ubiquitous chemicals in the system instead of trying to dial it back. Coming from a food sovereignty and an agroecology perspective, we sort of reckon there needs to be a transition to a totally different way of farming. I do think there's a responsibility on all of us, but in particular governments, to show some leadership in how to transition farms to more biodiverse production methods using integrated pest management. You know, there are lots of tools in the organic farmer's toolbox as well, even though some of those may be imperfect. You have broadacre organic farmers not using glyphosate. So we know it can be done. And I would say that we need to be making that transition rather rapidly, given the biodiversity loss and climate change from the production of of, um, agrochemicals as well. Given that the decision has been made now by the EU, what kind of knock-on effects do you expect that to have in Australia? Some farmers were relieved that it means that they maintain markets in the EU to to ship glyphosate-treated produce to. I did see there were some prohibitions included in the extra 10 years, including not being able to use it for a late harvest desiccant. So I know that's how it's used sometimes in Australia, and that might change some of our practices towards more environmentally sound practices as well. It just might be a slower transition than some of us had hoped. That's Tammy Jonas from the Australian Food Sovereignty Alliance there. Meanwhile, broadacre farming organisations and farmers that use glyphosate to control weeds, conserve moisture and minimise the need to plough until up the soil, breathing a sigh of relief. As Shona Gavel is the Chief Executive of Grain Growers. She says Australian growers will be welcoming this news. It is good news for Australian growers um, that the decision has been made by the EU to extend this approval. Uh, And and there's a few reasons behind that, but at the end of the day, it means that uh, farmers overseas are able to continue using the weed management tools that they require. I don't like to speculate on on exactly what it would have meant because we'd have had to look at that closely when the decision was was announced. But, you know, what I can put forward is that there would, with EU restrictions, uh, that would impact on our imports. There's also other countries uh, that look and watch the EU fairly closely. So so we would uh, suspect that that would mean that they might start to reflect the EU requirements um, and that there'd be barriers put in place around uh, the, the chemical usage elsewhere. Okay, so clearly glyphosate is a, a big part of production systems in Australia and there would be concern that if, if other countries outlawed it, they would also outlaw the importation of products uh, produced in, in glyphosate-based systems? That's right. So it is a, it is technology that's really enabled Australian farmers uh, to put in some good sustainability practices as well, Angus. So we've seen uh, the improvements with no-till and minimum-till farming practices because of the use of glyphosate. And it's also an industry where we've been, um, you know, good stewards of chemical use. We've got a lot of training, chemical training that growers undertake. We've got a science-based regulator um, and there's, there's strong compliance with the product usage as well here in Australia. 
That's Shona Gavel there from Grain Growers speaking with Angus Verley. A couple of texts here uh, from Tom at Winslow says, trade with the European Union will always be about politics versus common sense. Protectionism is alive and well in Brussels, says Tom. And this one says, Warwick, have you done the Akubra story yet? I keep missing who bought the business. Well... This one's for you then, anonymous texter, because iconic iconic Australian hat maker Akubra announced yesterday that the business has been sold to Tatarang, which is owned by mining magnates Andrew and Nicola Forrest. Akubra has been run by the Kerr family for the last 147 years. So this sale is a big deal and a big shift in the ownership of the hat maker, as Tina Quinn reports. It's an Australian fashion staple, famously donned by celebrities and prime ministers, and the new owners of Akubra hats, which have been handmade in Australia for almost 150 years, intend to keep it that way. Australia is the winner out of this. Australia keeps a legacy at home with an organisation who's so proud to be Australian, who's so proud of our nation, our history, everything which our diggers have fought for, the fact these hats are worn all over the world by our diggers, by Australians everywhere. If you want to be seen to be proudly Australian, then in an Akrobra is the way to do it. Mining magnates Andrew and Nicola Forrest over the weekend announcing their private investment firm Tatarang had acquired a Kubra from the Kia family after 147 years of ownership. The Akubra business started in Hobart in 1876 and the hats have been manufactured in Kempsey on the New South Wales mid-north coast since 1972. Over the last 50 years since its Kempsey workshop first opened, they've become a major employer for the region with more than 120 staff. Akubra's outgoing chair, Stephen Keir, said the decision to sell was a difficult one but cited the COVID-19 pandemic as one of the main drivers. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a long process. We've, um, my sisters and I have talked for a long time about um, where we can get this business to, and we've, we've done a pretty good job to get it where it is now, and our forefathers have done a good job to where it is. But it needs more, and um, we were just worried that we weren't going to be able to give it what it needs. And um, Tattering and the forests have proven um, what they've done with Aaron Williams. Um, we've dealt with Aaron Williams for, for a long time and um, it's just the brand, we, we took ourselves out of the picture and thought what does the brand need and what does the company need and um, this is a decision we came to and um, we, we just wanted we wanted to get up there Tatarang, they've proven what they do Mr Forrest has talked to me over the years Andrew Digger Andrew's <laughs> talked to me over the years and um, he his passion for manufacturing here is what a place like this needs. Um, the first six months of the pandemic were really, really tough. Uh, then it took off, and that's where we've been stuck. We've had it to a point, and we can't get it further. The world's out there. Most of our sales are in Australia, so Tatarang will take that further and do that. Andrew and Nicola Forrest have vowed to expand Akubra's operations, pointing to their 2020 purchase of the Australian boot label RM Williams, which has seen an increase to that brand's workforce of more than 500 people. The Forests announced they had separated this year but continue to invest together through Tatarang. So the owners of RM Williams are now the owners of Akubra Tatarang, owned by mining magnates Andrew and Nicola Forrest. Now the owners of Akubra as well as RM Williams will have to keep an eye on how those businesses go from here. It is.
Uh, 28 to 1 here on the country air. If you're out in the Akubra or if you're out in any other hat for that matter, I am loving your photos coming in of the farm and what farming endeavours you're doing this lunchtime. You can always take, snap a pic, send it to us, 0467 842 722. I'm Got a couple here. I'll tell you about those in a moment. Branson Gibson's been waiting patiently, though. Let's head to him for regional news headlines right now. Good afternoon, Branson. Good afternoon, Was. A 20-year-old woman from the United Kingdom has died in hospital following a single vehicle crash in Victoria's southwest. Police say the woman was driving a station wagon along the Prince's Highway when it lost control and hit a tree at Winnap around 3 o'clock yesterday afternoon. She was airlifted to hospital with critical injuries and later died. Two passengers in the vehicle, both 26-year-old men from the UK, were taken to hospital with injuries. Investigations into the crash continue. Authorities are investigating after a fire gutted a business in Bendigo yesterday. Nearby residents were evacuated and 200 firefighters battled the blaze at the Tools Warehouse on Hatton Street in Golden Square. Emergency services remained at the scene throughout the night, making sure it was safe. It was brought under control and made safe around a quarter past seven last night. A proposed offshore wind project is using new DNA technology to map the marine environment off the Gippsland coast. The 5 gigawatt Eleonora offshore wind project would be situated in Gippsland's offshore wind zone if it gets approved. The marine study aims to reduce the wind farm's impact on the environment by being more efficient than traditional environmental monitoring methods. And some of the country's best young Aussie rules footballers will find a new home tonight when the 2023 AFL draft gets underway. Tongala's Harley Reid is expected to be selected with the first overall pick, currently held by the West Coast Eagles. Reid grew up in Tongala, a small dairy town with a population of less than 2,000 people, playing for his hometown club the Blues and the Bendigo Pioneers. Zane Dersma from Foster in Gippsland is also tipped to be drafted early in the first round. And that's the latest ABC News. For more, visit abc.net.au forward slash news. A tiny boy at number one. Love that. Thank you very much for that, Branson Gibson, with regional news headlines. Uh, always love a country boy done good story. 0467 842 722 if you want to send us a text on the country hour. Uh, I'm asking you what you're up to today if you're out on the farm. Andrew sent, G'day, was I'm cutting silage at our trim. The paddock is still soft underfoot. Now, that's Currumburra way. I didn't even need to look that up, even though I never heard of our trim before, because I could see how green that grass is where you are, Andrew, and you've got the green tractor there. But the grass uh, in the background before uh, you've cut it is mighty high. It's, what, half a big tractor wheel height on uh, on your vehicle there. So it looks like you've got plenty of work to do. Thank you for sending that through. This one says, cutting small square bales. Uh, trying to beat the spring storms. And I can see uh, the tractor lifting those squares up onto the back of the truck there. Thank you for sending that out. And I know you're in the North Anonymous texter because that paddock looks a lot drier than Andrew's green paddock down near Carranborough. Thank you for sending them through. 0467 842 722 to send a text. This one from Ross says, Was, I'm pretty nervous about the rainfall forecast for this Friday. Please ask the weather presenter what's forecast for the Mallee for Friday. We're 70% through harvest, says Ross. Ross, will do. Thank you for sending that through. Stephanie Miles is a senior forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Warwick. How are you going? You've already got the individual weather request for later on, uh, but we should start with today. How's it looking around this state right now? 
Yeah, can do. Look, I mean, at the moment, we're probably the most settled for the day that we're going to be. There's a lot of crowd in the south, you know, quite a strong deck over the metro and eastern Gippsland parts, but then like you said, really beautiful and nice in the north with not really many clouds in the sky. We are starting to see a couple of showers and thunderstorms develop just near our eastern border near New South Wales, so expecting really that convective activity to start to increase throughout the afternoon. They'll be mostly uh, in the eastern parts of the state over those ranges and sticking to that part today. But, yeah, look, I can understand the concern with the rainfall coming up. Uh, look, we've got a really nice-looking, and by nice I mean a trough that's over the eastern parts of Australia, which is really just going to be helping to force all of that rainfall and thunderstorms over the next really weak work. Uh, but, you know, every day is going to be a little bit different to the one beforehand. And, and so I suppose take us through the week. When's, when's rain meant to arrive and how are we looking as we, we move towards the week, through the week? Yeah, sure. Okay, so from tomorrow, so from Tuesday, we're expecting that trough to be over the eastern parts of the state, and that'll drive a lot of shower activity over the north, central, and northeastern parts, and mainly eastern parts of uh, the state with just shower activity, but those thunderstorms will also be increasing in the northeastern parts too, so that's Tuesday. Overnight on Tuesday, that shower activity should be contrasting eastwards. So by Wednesday morning, we'll really just have southerly flow, meaning that we'll get a couple of isolated showers on and south of the ranges on Wednesday. Now on Thursday, we've probably got one of the drier days of the week where we'll kind of get a couple more showers on and south of the ranges, starting to increase just slightly in the northwestern parts of the state, so over the Mallee as well. But by Friday, we've got that trough that's over the eastern parts of Australia. It starts to really deepen once again, but over the northwestern parts of our state and South Australia, driving a lot of that shower activity to be mostly over the northern parts. Uh, and again, we've got some isolated thunderstorms occurring from Friday onwards too. And by Saturday, <coughs> excuse me, the movement of that trough means that we're not really quite sure where our highest amounts of rainfall is going to be. But throughout the day on Saturday, we will have some quite widespread showers and thunderstorm activity. And then that's going to be continuing to through on Sunday. However, moving slightly eastwards, and then by Monday, hopefully sticking to more so the east and the southeast. So, yeah, look, there's quite a bit of a variety throughout the week of where that rainfall is going to be. But yeah, look, it's definitely going to be. It's definitely around. I <laughs> <laughs> bet when we're talking how much rain, what are we what are we talking up to in in sort of the upper ends of the forecast right now? Yeah, sure. That's a good question. The upper ends. All right. So for tomorrow in the eastern and central parts of the state, anywhere between the 2 to 10 mils. And I actually, do you know what? That's probably a good description for what we're going to get throughout the week. So around the 2 to 10 mils in the areas where we're going to get showers, but in those thunderstorms anywhere between 10 to 20 millimetres. Tomorrow might be up to a little bit more higher in the 20 to 30 millimetres. Again, for Tuesday, those thunderstorms and shower activities mostly in the northeast and eastern parts of the state. Wednesday, a lot drier. Thursday, a lot drier. So on Friday, those upper ends in the northwestern parts, so in the Mallee and the Wimmera, anywhere between the 2 to 5 millimetres, a little bit higher in those thunderstorms, I'd say up to about 10 to 20 millimetres in the Mallee. And then from Saturday onwards, I'd say 2 to 10 across the whole of the state, a little bit drier in the southeast, but again, in those thunderstorms, anywhere up to the 10 to 20 millimetres as well. Work. So, and is Saturday going to be the big day, I suppose, for, for the bigger falls by the sounds yeah. of that? Yeah, it does seem like it's more widespread on the Saturday as well. But I would be, you know, I wouldn't be putting past being worried about some heavier falls in the northwest on the Friday. Those 10 to 20 millimetres seem like they're a lot compared to such dry conditions that we've had over the last, you know, few months or really half a year.
So it sounds like, yeah, they could really put the brakes on some, some people's harvests by the sound of it with, with that much rain falling. Well, yeah, um, so I apologise for my ignorance when it comes to harvest. <laughs> yeah, you're probably not the person for me to be asking <laughs> that though, Stephanie. But yes, if we're getting like an inch of rainfall, that's going to put the brakes on for a lot of people. I've got a request from Gippsland too that I want to read to you um, yep. before I try and turn you into an agronomist again. Uh, <laughs> Hi, ABC. Any chance of getting rain details over the next week or two around for hay and silage harvest in central Gippsland around Sale and Yarram, says Peter. We won't do the second week for you, Peter, but let's look at the first seven days of forecast. What does the the rainfall look like for that central Gippsland area over the next week or so, Stephanie? Yeah, central Gippsland and eastern Gippsland are going to be feeling it a lot today and tomorrow. Sorry, not so much today, but tomorrow definitely. So after, you know, the 10 mils or so tomorrow. uh, And then Wednesday, Thursday will be a couple of... Of mills in those drier conditions, and by Friday, most of that rainfall will be in the northwest. So dry on Friday, but then yeah, by Saturday we're still expecting around the two to five for central Gippsland, and perhaps a little bit more on the Sunday as everything starts to move eastwards. But not quite certain on that map on Sunday yet. I feel like we're going to be talking about rain all week. But thank awesome. you for starting it off for us today, Stephanie. Uh, my pleasure, Warwick. I'll be back again tomorrow, so I'll speak to you then. Looking forward to it. Ripper. Thank you, Stephanie Miles, their senior forecaster at the Weather Bureau. You you know Stephanie's going to be back tomorrow then. If you have a question for her, send a text either today or tomorrow, 0467 842 722, where I've been asking you what you're up to. Uh, Wimmera, especially Caniva, Rain and Temp. Oh, we might have got that for it. Oh, here's, here's the text of the photos. Uh, Ish, Dooley and JD have got the small squares going at Whiteheads Creek. One of Ish, Dooley or JD is standing on top of the square bales on the back of the truck. And we're not talking a Cobra here. We're talking a Panama type hat situation or a boater? Wide brimmed all the same. Well done for being sun smart. Rod in Molka says loading rounds in the paddock uh, back to the shed, uh, says Rod. And looks like you've got a good load on there too, Rod. Uh, harvesting canola at Gilliston around three and a half tonnes, says smiley face emoji. Uh, Dave, thank you very much for that. You can keep those photos coming. We'll tell you about more of the agriculture that's going on this lunchtime. Right now, people sending in photos about what they're up to, you can do the same, 0467 842 722. So when we're talking agriculture, what state do you think the industry is in at the moment off the back of bumper seasons and for some still a bumper harvest this year? Agriculture's grown to over a $90 billion farm gate industry, but with the collapse in sheep and cattle prices, dry weather up north and the forecast of a hot summer, is the industry in for a difficult and more frugal time? I caught up with Tony Ma, the CEO of the National Farmers Federation, to talk about the state of agriculture, retail meat prices and government policy. Look, I think it's in a it's in a pretty good position after a couple of years. Now, I say that with hesitation. I mean, I know that the prices and, and there's fires and there's you know dry conditions or drought in some of the states, but by and large, we've had a couple of decent seasons, generally good seasons, and um, the industry should be well placed to face some of the challenges that are coming. And yes, the prices for livestock are, are hitting, and, and they're really hurting um, some businesses. And likewise, you know, climatic conditions, so dry uh, conditions or fires and those sorts of things, that is part of the agricultural landscape in Australia. So you know, we have to deal with that. Um, my observation is the industry is getting better at dealing with that volatility and that fluctuations, uh, and that the couple of good seasons that we've had, you know, 90, over $90 billion of farm gate value that should place us well to deal with these challenges. So that's from a business point of view. From a policy point of view, there are a couple of really challenging 
policies coming down the pathway. So, you know, live sheep exports, um, buybacks, you know, labour. So we're in a good spot, but there is certainly um, no shortage of challenges facing this sector. And and you mentioned prices as a a major challenge at Cattle Australia Forum here today, looking closely. It was interesting in the room just before watching producers' eyes peak up at retail prices versus farm prices. It's become a political debate at the moment. There are calls from an inquiry from the opposition. The federal minister saying he's been talking to supermarkets, asking them to do more, and they do have some reviews elsewhere looking at this. Is it an issue that the NFF needs to pick a fight on or needs to watch closely in terms of getting retailers to better reflect what farmers are facing in terms of cost pressures? It's definitely an issue that we're um, we're on and and we're talking about. We actually DJ and I had a meeting with Mick Keogh from the ACCC on uh, Thursday, so yesterday, um, and we talked to him about this issue. The, the transparency is what we're seeking. So we know there's fluctuations in commodity prices. It's agriculture and it's very cyclical. So we get that. Um, what we think can improve the situation, and it's not just red meat. We're talking about you know horticulture. We're talking about other sectors as well. Is the transparency across the supply chain? is what will benefit the industry. As we heard today, there in other countries, there are mechanisms and provisions that allow for better transparency. And our view is that we should look at those, see how appropriate they are here, and if they're appropriate, let's get them in and look at them. How do you get that? How do you get those mechanisms? Uh, you look at how they're operating in other countries and if they need to be regulated, if you know they're, they're over and above what is in place in a number of sectors now, like codes of conduct then let's look at that. At the same time, and again, we heard this today, at the same time, let's not underestimate any unintended consequences. So, you know, we're an export-orientated industry. We start sort of um, compromising uh, the ability to get good prices offshore, then we want to make sure we know about that before we sort of, you know, put in place measures that, um, you know, we don't fully understand. Is it a hard position for a farm group to be in? Because you you want transparency you you want to know you're getting a fair price i'd imagine more than anything but you also don't want to demonize the biggest buyers of your produce right that's exactly right and we also have to recognize as i was saying that it's very cyclical and we saw some charts today and and people that are following this you know uh, would be aware that um the the price goes up the price goes down and and the retail price uh you know fluctuates a little bit um so it's very cyclical and um that's part of the Situation. The other part is that you know we're we're in a space there where there is uh, an oversupply. You know, people are preparing, perhaps making good decisions. If there's a hotter, drier couple of seasons coming, um, you know, they're making these decisions to put product onto the market. That's having an effect. So there's not one single thing here that is causing it, but the transparency aspect, and that's you know that's what we're seeking then that'll allow people to make better decisions and allow people to understand the market. And I think if we get there, that's a good outcome. So would you support an, an inquiry or a, an investigation into how to best do that? There's been a number of these, right? So in the red meat industry, in the dairy industry, we've got horticulture codes where, you know, we're actually looking at a chicken code of conduct now. So the more measures that we can get that improve the transparency, I think producers would be happy with. And that's, what, that's our agenda right now is to look at what measures 
we can put in place with government that improve the transparency. Take you to another issue, and that's international agriculture at the moment. And your conference actually looked at a lot of this, right, is the pressures on farmers in different areas around the world. The EU has just decided to approve glyphosate for another 10 years. And that this has been a controversial debate, not only there, but with a lot of groups looking at EU legislation as a guide to what countries like Australia should be doing. Is is the EU allowing 10 more years of glyphosate a win for Australian farmers? It definitely is. Uh, the science around this is absolutely critical and we have placed a lot of importance on the APVMA here uh, and the science must guide the decision making. So uh, the, the decision overnight in the EU is encouraging. I think we need to continue as an industry, make sure that we are on the right side of science uh, and look at efficiency measures and look where we need to use chemical. I mean, that's happening on farm as we speak. People are doing making those decisions for a range of reasons. Um, But it is encouraging because we do tend to get a lot of uh, tone and flavour from what happens in the the EU. It does tend to trickle down well around the globe. So um, it was pretty encouraging and pretty pleasing to see that they've uh, continued to allow the use of a critical input like glyphosate for another 10 years. Given the politics in the EU. Was it a surprise to you that this decision was made? Yeah, look, it was a pleasant surprise. I, you know, um, because of the, a lot of the discussion and a lot of the noise around this was indicating it wasn't going to go in this direction. So um, the 10-year term, I think, was a surprise. I thought they might sort of um, approve it for another couple of years. 10 years is a, is a decent amount of time in the scheme of things. Um, so that's pleasing. And again, for us as an industry, I think we need to continue to look at um, the science and make sure that we're doing everything we possibly can. The critical inputs like that are just um, so important to farmers. And, and just in t- keeping the international view on at the moment, a lot of farmers that spoke to your conference and a lot of the debate um, around the world for farming organisations like the EU has been around emissions and agriculture's role in emissions. The net zero consultation has been launched for agriculture uh, recently. What, what, from an F- NFF point of view, what do you hope agriculture gets out of a government coming to you and saying, give us your ideas on emissions reduction? A couple of things. One is recognition of the importance of agriculture. We've seen in recent years policies being implemented and it looks and feels like they haven't recognised agriculture. They haven't taken into account, you know, farming and and the communities in which they live. So we want um, recognition and and acknowledgement of the importance. Uh, And secondly, I think that uh, we, we need to make sure that we balance the needs of agriculture uh, against those you know, environmental policies um, against the need to feed and clothe people. You know, we, we actually need to keep producing food and fibre for Australians but also the world and we can continue to do that in a sustainable way. So um, no restrictions, you know, more recognition um, and more technology to allow agriculture to to continue to adapt. We've done that, we've shown we can do that. So more support to adapt and, you know, be part of the solution. Do you think that's what government wants to hear? I'm not sure. I think they're interested in solutions. Um, I think they've got a bit of an agenda. Our job as representatives of the ag sector is to make sure that they hear that and, and it's not just nodding, but they actually implement and they you know, make these policies reflect what the industry wants. Tony Mark, good to talk to you. Terrific. Thanks for having me.
That's the CEO of the National Farmers Federation, Tony Maher, speaking to me whilst I was at the Cattle Australia Forum in Albury on Friday. It's nine to one here on the country hour, and as the wait continues for the federal parliament to vote on an extension to the Murray-Darling Basin plan, irrigators in South Australia are asking the government to look at more alternatives than just water buybacks to get the water that it wants. One solution that's been floated by these groups is to lease water licences to the federal government instead of selling them. Murtho fruit and nut grower Ben Hazlitt told Eliza Bellage it is one of the few proposals on the table. There's a, a couple of concepts around that. Uh, one of them has been worked up in uh, a lot of detail by Waterfine that involved government having a caveat over some grower water and then calling on that when required after they'd exhausted the water that they owned. So there is a detailed proposal out there that Waterfine have worked up on that that's quite interesting and I think worth looking at. I've also heard that um, potentially there's people asking that of the government's water that they currently own, that if they didn't require that they might lease that back into uh, production. There's obviously some challenges. High cost water means you need to grow high returning crops. High returning crops tend to be permanent crops, uh, not always, but tend to be. And those crops need uh, water security over long periods of time. So if there is going to be sort of a lease program, you need to understand how that works over a long period of time. Otherwise, you wouldn't invest in a uh, high value tree crop. So of those uh, different proposals at the moment, are there any that uh, seem more favourable to you? I think um, one of the big challenges uh, for the government is um, about deliverability and uh, one of the arguments at the moment is um, if you can't actually deliver that environmental water to the places it needs to go, whether it's because of um, a government issue or a channel issue of being able to get it there, then perhaps you shouldn't be buying it until you've worked that out. So potentially one of the benefits of a, um, a program where you lease that water from growers is that water's not taken out of the consumptive pool before they've worked out how to actually deliver it. Because once it's removed from the consumptive pool, it's gone forever and uh, gone from production forever. I'd, I'd say that really what we need to do is we need to make sure that as food producers need to do more is less, so too do the environmental watering programs, which we absolutely support. We know we need a healthy working river, but there should be innovation uh, that has to occur on everyone's part, not just a food producer's. Whether it's buybacks or leasebacks, as a food producer, do you have any concerns around taking water licences away from irrigators and what that means, not just for communities, but also for food production in Australia? I think the, the challenge here is that people actually have to understand the scale of what we're talking about. Just the 450 gigalitres uh, that's being talked about a lot at the moment, that is all of South Australia's irrigation production. And so we're talking about all the food produced and all the communities that rely on it. It's a very large area and a huge amount of money. So I guess as part of this whole process, I'd be just saying, are we thinking as a nation about our food and fibre production? What's the plan when you actually remove that extra water? And my big challenges if you're not going to be able to use it properly don't remove it until you understand how you can actually deliver it so we really need to have some good innovation and I think innovation involves on how you get the water it doesn't just have to be all right one answer we just buy it there has to be other things that we look at that actually make a really balanced system it's a healthy working river a system that we can produce food have healthy communities and obviously have a healthy environment. That's South Australian irrigation farmer Ben Hazlitt speaking there with Eliza Bellage.
Market time. Let's start with Jenny Kelly, who's in Bendigo. Good afternoon. The market got some of its mojo back today with everything dearer. The big mover was light lambs, which gained 8 to $15, pushed up by restockers who went harder against processors wanting MK kill lambs. The better bred lines of light lambs, mostly 50 to $80. The bigger framed 16 to 18 kilo types averaging $74 to the paddock and the 12 to 16 kilos $60. The average cost on a weight basis went over 400 cents a kilo. Not a lot of heavy prime lambs again. The heaviest suckers, 26 to 30 kilos, 135 to a top of 177, averaging over 500 cents and some pens above 550 cents a kilo. Trade lambs also averaged dearer but were erratic in places. The 24 to 26 kilos, 123 to 145, and the 22 to 24 kilos, 102 to 136, to average $115 at a ballpark, 480 cents a kilo. Sean Suckers sold particularly well, an exporter buying to put on feed at $90 to $115, most sheep $30 to $50 today, with merinos in a skin out to $60. Jenny Kelly for MLA. Prices up at Bendigo. Let's see how cattle are going. We'll go to Packenham. G'day, Brendan Fletcher. G'day, Warwick. Numbers increased to 11.80. That's 110 more with all of the regular buyers showing more interest in the dearer market. Quality improved with more prime cattle and fewer cows. Trade cattle sold up to 15 cents dearer. Grown steers and bullocks lifted 3 to 5 cents. Manufacturing steers gained 10 to 14. Heavy heifers kicked 20 cents. Cows lifted 5 to 10 with processors loading cows for an estimated 3.22 to 3.68 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Heavy bulls sold firm. Vealers sold from 180 to 275, yearling trade steers 225 to 270, the heifer portion 180 to 210. Ground steers and sold from 210 to 240, bullocks 227 to 238. Heavy Friesian steers 165 to 193, crossbreds 170 to 230. Most light and medium weight cows 131 to 164, heavyweights 144 to 192, heavy bulls 181 to 218. This is Brendan Fletcher reporting for MLA. Thanks, Brendan. Let's go to Mortlake and Chris Agnew. Thanks, Warwick. Agents yarded a similar number to last week's offering of 1,980 head at Mortlake. The grown cattle improved this week, 10 to 15 cents. Manufacturing steers were fully firm and the trade cattle gained 15 to 20 cents with cows were firm to 5 cents and to 10 cents dearer, more so for the very heavy cows. Dairy cows sold firm to slightly softer in places and the bulls slipped 15 cents. This week, the good vealers made to a top of 250 cents. Trade steers and heifers made between 200 to 230 cents and the grown cattle topped out at 235 cents. Manufacturing steers, 130 to 200 cents and the good beef cows from 175 to 198 with the medium weights between 145 and 172. Dairy cows are generally selling between 133 and 172. At Mortlake, this is Chris Agnew reporting for... MLA. Lucky last is the Wagga cattle with Leanne Dax. Good afternoon. The Wagga sale experienced a shift in dynamics due to the rain in the north, leading to notable increase in prices ranging from 10 to 20 cents across various categories. Store steers saw a substantial lift to 50 cents, reaching a top of 288 cents a kilogram. The cow market, it exhibited strong competition, especially for leaner types, with prices climbing up to 30 cents higher. Heavy cows command a top price of 2.11 cents, jumping 20. And the market for heavy steers and bullocks remain robust, with 
prices ranging from 176 to 238. Despite not all domestic buyers participating this week in the trade market, trade steers and heifers did present in reasonable numbers and experienced a price surge of 20 cents, selling within the range of 180 to 250. The best bulls topped at 2.42 and I'm Leanne Dax for MLA. Thanks, Leanne. Thank you to all of you for sending us photos today of what you're up to on the farm. Absolutely cracking shots of you hard at work. It was great to see. We'll catch you tomorrow.